Well, good morning to you. It's good to be with you today. For those who would like Children's Church for their little ones, you can be dismissed at this time to an age-appropriate service downstairs up through grade six, four years old through grade six. Of course, the little ones are already down there, but uh, the next oldest can join them if you'd like. Turn to Matthew 19 in your copy of God's Word, if you would. Matthew 19. Uh, the directed prayer slides that we put up a little bit ago, if you would like a copy of those to help you as you pray for our nation, uh, we'll have those posted online. You'll be able to download those if you'd like, and uh, you can use those, or you can just email me, and I'll give you a copy if you'd like. We are currently in a series, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, and as we uh, are looking, at that, looking through that series, we are going through verse by verse through the books of First and Second Corinthians. And particular here this morning on singleness and marriage, to marry or not introduction. And it's a little bit of a longer introduction, as I've explained to you before. We're really in our fourth stop in Paul's letter to the, uh, the church in Corinth. As we think about God's plan for a healthy church and we're processing those kinds of things and the problems that the church seemed to have, we get to chapter 6, verse 12, really through the end of chapter 7. Paul is dealing with the use of the body. He's dealing with singleness. He's dealing with marriage. And so he has to deal with errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And last time we were together, uh, we really ended without finishing our study of Matthew 19. And we spent some time at the beginning looking at a few verses to refresh our memory of God's view on homosexuality, really our response, what those passages uh, mean and who they apply to. And as we said last week, before we, really, we can begin an in-depth look in chapter 7, Today, over the, and over the next several weeks, we're going to take a, a look at a number of topics and introduce this section with some contextual background. Some of the subjects the Bible speaks clearly on are the subjects of uh, singleness and marriage and divorce. And marriage and divorce and singleness are very important subjects, particularly in today's culture. And what I'd like to do over the next several weeks is to take the, some time to really lay a foundation of God's instructions on those things. Paul's going to refer to these basic instructions when he answers the questions that are going to be posed to him from the Corinthian church in, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. And some of the things he is going to say to them will require some assumed knowledge. And so the survey of some of God's instructions on these topics is going to give us an understanding of the context there in the Corinthian church. And it will also be very beneficial to us in its own right to refresh us again on what God has to say about these very important topics. And if you were here, you know that we just got to verse 5, and we planned to get through verse 6, and so I'd like you to turn to Matthew 19, if you would, and pick up in verse 1, and I'll just do a quick review as we want to make sure we cover the, the passages that we have before us today. We'll be in a number of places today, and as you look in your bulletin, you can find some notes, and if that's helpful for you, back behind me on the screen will be some underlined things that will be takeaways that you can come and uh, jot down and then uh, move on today and think about later this week as you restudy the passages here that we've looked at. So look with me at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read Matthew 19 verses 1 and 2, and then we'll make some comments and kind of move on from there. Now, now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from, the Gal from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, as we said last time, chapter 18 was a lesson, a time of teaching on related topics or ideas. And really beginning in the last part of chapter 17, going all the way through chapter 18, Jesus taught on faith, he taught on taxes, he taught on humility, he taught on those who cause others to stumble, he talked about evangelization and what that looked like, 
correcting a sinning brother, forgiveness, a number of topics as he spoke to them. And Jesus goes on then to this region beyond, or the word Paran in the Greek language, simply referring to this land beyond the Jordan River. And as he moves over there, this is a, a rather heavily Jewish populated area under the control of Herod Antipas. This is the Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded. And it says he healed them there, and, and of course his healings showed that he uh, had love and compassion for the people. It confirmed that he was God as well uh, by his authoritative teaching and by these miraculous powers he showed in his miracles. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them one lesson after another. He's getting ready to depart. He wants to make sure that they understand what they need to do so they can carry on when he is gone. And so all the while, too, the Pharisees are following after him. And they are testing him, and they are questioning him. They're trying to undermine his teaching, uh, trying to place doubt in the hearts of the people. And in this particular passage, there's a question uh, by the Pharisees. Actually, there's two questions he's going to answer as we get all the way through verse 12. And then there's one question from his disciples. And in those three questions and the answers that follow, Jesus really gives us a pattern of what human relationships are supposed to look like. And he doesn't argue with them about the philosophies of the day, and he doesn't take them to task on what they perhaps think about it right now, and what the context is, and what the government says, and all of those kinds of things. He just skips back over all that stuff and starts answering their questions from God's perspective. And I think that's very important for us today. So look at verse 3. Here's the first question. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the Pharisees are determined in their efforts to plot against him, as we saw last time. Obviously, they wanted him to fail the test. They gave him a test they thought he couldn't pass. And they did it for one of two reasons. One, to discredit him, or two, uh, they wanted him dead. And we saw that last time. So those thoughts were in their mind. They have this test. And so uh, they are planning on seeing him discredited or seeing him carried off to his death and so it's not an arbitrary test, it's a planned test, it's thoughtful, it's calculated, it's timed perfectly for his location. And we saw all that last time so that Jesus would have to issue a public opinion on divorce or on marriage and singleness rather as a larger perspective uh, in the same region where John the Baptist, was, he rebuked Herod Antipas for his divorce and remarriage. And we looked at all that. So when they come with this question, they already know Jesus' opinion on the subject. He made it clear to them in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. So this is not a question seeking an answer. It's a question seeking some division, seeking Jesus' undermining, seeking Jesus' death. Their way to trip him up. Here's his reply. Look at, uh, if you would, uh, verse 4. He answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus didn't answer their question in the way that they were expecting. He didn't get in an argument with them about whether John the Baptist was right or wrong and what he did. He didn't talk about what the rules for marriage in Rome were, which there were a number of different types of arrangements in marriage. Only one of them pretty much aligns with what Scripture says. A lot of other things they were people in Rome at, under the Roman government were allowed to do which are things Paul will have to deal with as he comes into this uh, Corinthian culture and all these different backgrounds and people are coming to him with questions. What do I do? I'm in this relationship or I have multiple relationships and all that stuff. So this background for us is super important because it gives us the original plan and that's where our reset is. And so he didn't answer back like they were hoping he would. He went back past rabbis, back past the customs, back past uh, tradition, past Roman law, all that stuff, right to the beginning to God himself. And he says to them, let's see what God intended. What was his plan? And that really puts everything, I think, for me, in perspective. And it takes a lot of pressure off me to try to 
find some reasoning argument of why it's, this is not appropriate. The reason it's not appropriate and the reason why what the Supreme Court has done is inappropriate is because God's already declared it from way long ago and he's the one who made marriages and he's the one who defined what it looked like. So that's our default. And we just say, listen, for human happiness, for human uh, joy, for human blessing, these are the things that are set up, okay? So he's telling them, look, the argument you have is not with me. The argument you have is not with John the Baptist. The argument you have is not with the teachings you heard from the past. Your argument is with God. Let's see what God had to say. And then he really quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 and just says, have you, have you not read this? And this is really a slap in the face to the Pharisees who supposedly read the scriptures and knew them. He says, you didn't even know this? I mean, this is right at the beginning. Then he gives them the basics to answer their question on divorce, but it also answers the question of polygamy and homosexuality and gender and many other questions. And I think it's interesting that as I was teaching this, there was someone on Facebook uh, who made this question on Facebook out there for people to answer. So is polygamy okay because all the patriarchs did it? I mean, it must have been okay with the Lord. Now this person should have known better, okay? And someone who's close to me answered them and but it was very, it made me scratch my head because I just thought, it's the perfect, <laughs> it's exactly what Jesus, have you not read what God did at the beginning? He made male and female and he put them together. And God could have done anything he wanted because he was the creator. He was under no obligation to create certain situations and he could have done whatever he wanted, right? But this is what he did. And it just seemed an obvious answer and the person responded back by saying, well, I have people who are friends of mine on both sides of this issue. Some think it must be okay because this is what happened. And, you know, the patriarchs were like this. And other people say, no, it, it can't be. And I'm just like, wow. And that's really the state of the church, isn't it? This person is a teacher of the church. And I'm just like, it just it fits so well for me. Because as I'm going through this, I'm just thinking, this is not obvious. But it isn't anymore. See, And, and it wasn't in Jesus' time either. And I think that you understand this, and we're not a church that waffles there, but I think it's good to come back and reset and just say, okay, what did Jesus say, and why is that important? And okay, that's our default mode. So, Jesus says, listen, here's the basics from the beginning. I'm going to answer your question, and it's going to answer a lot of other questions for us, too. And we saw the first and second reasons last time. Number one, one man was created for one woman. Pretty straightforward. And I think that's exactly what he said. There's no way to, to scratch your head and say, what did he mean by that? He created man and woman and he put them together. I mean, that's obvious. So he, he quotes Genesis 127 and he says, and he answered them and said to them in Matthew 19:4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? All right. So he made one guy and one girl. That was the original creation. And as you think about what God could have done, he could have done whatever he wanted. Haven't you read about creation, guys? He says, you know, remember what it says? God created Adam, God created Eve, and all the options that someone like God could have had in the initial creation, he could have done whatever he wanted. As we said, he could have made, you know, three and three, said work it out or whatever, you know, but he didn't do that. He just made one and one, okay? One man for one woman, that was a divine plan. No alternatives there. He didn't make provision for any other circumstances either. He wants his followers to see a simple point. This is this. There's no other options. Adam and Eve, one choice, that was it. God's intentional creation. Okay? Unbreakable, permanent, indissoluble union, one man, one woman. And by doing that, God sets up the pattern for the entire human race. And he does that all throughout history. Just because human populations grew and produced a lot of different alternatives, and the Corinthian church in Rome had a whole bunch of alternatives that were immoral, okay? And they were exercising all of those sinful alternatives. Just because the culture 
you know, expanded just because there were more people on the earth. Jesus says, listen, by the time Jesus is preaching, I mean, obviously culture has changed and there's a whole lot more people on the earth than there were in Eden. Jesus just says, listen, what did God say? This is what he said. That's the plan. So he makes it very clear. God didn't change that original plan. It's obvious by God's original creation. Then this saw the second one of the basics of human relationships, and, and he's drawing on Genesis 2.24 when he, when he speaks here in verse 5. He says, for this reason, that's the union of one man and one woman, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, or the word cleave perhaps in your, in your Bible, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one flesh. Number two, God creates a powerful link. Okay, first of all, he, he created one man for one woman, and then he created this powerful link. Okay, this is God's definition of marriage. This is his word, his thought, his desire for human relationships is here. So God puts them together, he brought them out, he put them together, he made it obvious, and we saw this basic principle has really two components. The first is, he breaks the parental relationship. That's in the home. He breaks the parental relationship, leaves the home, and he takes a wife, and he cleaves to her, and then that's God's plan. And that word cleave or join, very important word we saw last time, same word that's used for glue. The idea is to be stuck together. Then the second component is the powerful, is this, in this powerful link is this idea of one flesh. And a man shall leave his father or mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we looked at that at length a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go into all the, the marvelous details of that. You can check that online. But the point of the second statement goes perfectly together with the first statement of bonding. This one flesh relationship, as it relates to this use of the body that we saw in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, so in Matthew 19, 6, he says this. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. They're not two anymore. So there's this physical and spiritual union between the man and the woman. And they have become one person through that union of marriage. And this is a really cool divine perspective. God says, this is how it is. I made one man, I made one woman, I take them out of their parallel relationships, put them together, and they are then one flesh. Husband loves his wife like his own body. As we saw in Ephesians 5, we're going to look at that again today. Husband loves his wife like Christ loves a church. God sees one flesh marriage, a picture of Christ and the church and salvation, a picture of God and Israel in salvation. It's the picture of the one flesh relationship in marriage. God sees one person. It's seen in tangible form. If the Lord blesses with children and the children they produce to actually become one flesh, the perfect mixing of those two people together. But God sees that immediately. We see it later. So from the beginning, God's plan was you can't talk about splitting up two people. You can't talk about uh, getting rid of this marriage relationship because they're one. You can't talk about replacing it. You can't talk about, you know, relationships, you know, something, something else in a relationship. It isn't an option from the beginning. Marriage looks like this. See. So, the third of the basics of human relationships we find in the last part of verse 6. And here it is. This is where we had to leave last time, so that's underlined. Uh, God is the one who came up with this concept of marriage. He made it. He puts it together. God's the craftsman of marriage. And that's exactly what he says. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God created one man and one woman. He established the powerful link between the two. Uh, the bonding, the cleaving, the following heart after, the sticking two things together, the lamination, if you will. God gives the bonding of the heart and the will and the mind and the direction. That unbreakable union. God gives us this oneness. He looks at marriage the way, this is, uh, the way it's supposed to be. This is what Jesus goes back to. God sees one person. God gives the abandonment to each other. God gives one to the other as a total possession 
of each other. We're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7 that that's exactly what he says to the husband and wife. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. And so he just kind of confirms this teaching all the way through. God gives children as evidence of that oneness, the tangible picture of what's happened to the two individuals. Now that word separate or put asunder uh, is the Greek verb karidzo, present active imperative. It means to depart from or to leave an area, to put away. Uh, it's the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 that's translated divorce. So the passage can be read, what God has put together, uh, don't be divorcing, don't be putting away, don't be changing it, if you will, don't be departing from it, don't be leaving it, don't... You get the idea. The passage is God giving his truth about all marriage. It has to do with a couple specifically and the idea of marriage in general. God is saying, I create marriages. I put marriages together. I make marriages, and you should not be taking them apart. You should not be changing it. You should not be replacing it. You should not be ignoring it. All of those things. He, hasn't, he isn't specifically talking about Christian marriages or non-Christian marriages. That's the interesting part. He's just saying marriage is my word, my idea, and I defined it. Every marriage, and this is what you need to understand, every marriage, whether it's a marriage of two believers or a marriage of a couple in a tribe in Papua New Guinea who've never heard about the true God, is an institution of God. It was God who made man and woman to complement each other. It's God who gave the capacity to strengthen each other's weaknesses it was God who gave them the ability to produce children. It was God who gave them the gift of companionship. It's God who gave the capacity of a man and a woman to abandon themselves to each other. And the Roman marriages had all different kinds of options. So Paul would have had to weed through those things and say, okay, this is the marriage that God's talking about. This concubinal relationship is not. That is excluded now. Or this relationship where the wife stays with her, her, her uh, parents and you just have this convenient relationship with her. This is not a marriage. But this one is. And this is the one we honor. Okay, and so Paul would have had to weed through all of that. But Jesus just goes back and makes it really simple. Okay, this, this marriage definition applies to everybody. The original setup in, in Eden was the setup for the entire world. And whoever gets married, no matter where they are, as they understand, whether they understand this passage or not, God sees that marriage as a relationship of two becoming one flesh. And beloved, non-believers enjoy the wonderful benefits of marriage between a man and a woman. Did you under and you can see that. I mean, in fact, I, and I say this a lot, that relationship that they have as non-believers in a marriage and the benefits that come with it, I believe will witness against them when they come before the judgment seat if they don't come to faith. It's one of the benefits God pours out on all men. Common grace in a marriage. Common grace and giving rain, common grace, all the things that are taken care of because God loves people and allows certain things to occur even though people, dis they don't obey him, they disobey him, they turn away from him. All these things still occur. Marriage is one of those common grace things. He defined it, people benefit from it, they have the joy of family and all those things and if they don't even know the Lord and never come to know him, it'll witness against them in the judgment. It'll be one of those things that God says, I made this. You benefited from it, yet you never gave thanks to me nor glorified me, as Romans 1 says. So, Romans 1 tells us, 18, that men are without excuse because some things can be known about God by the things that are made. And guess what, beloved? Marriage is one of those things, okay? Now, and he says this, what God has joined together, let not man separate, let not man divorce. Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's not a matter of what you think or what you were taught of old. 
It's not a matter of whether you're having this argument with your government or you're having an argument with each other or with me. The substance of the passage is simply this. God says, I make marriages. Jesus is making it clear to these Pharisees. It doesn't matter what your traditions might be. It doesn't matter what your orientation might be. It doesn't matter whether you or anyone else might, what they might think about it. The original plan is right here. What God's joined together, let not man separate. Jesus wants to make that very clear, what God intended. Adding else, adding anything else to it, defining it any other way, doing it some other way, breaking up a marriage, whatever, affronts the God who put it together. So the Pharisees say to Jesus, you know, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus just says to them, what did God say? He said, one man for one woman, no alternatives. Marriage is a powerful link, a bond, a joining together, a one flesh relationship, not separate anymore. The couple has become one, not divisible by anything. What God says is, I'm the craftsman of marriage. It doesn't matter what you or anyone else might think about it, because when you get a divorce, you rip apart what I've put together, and that should make you think. And if you're trying to define it some other way besides what I created originally, that should make you think, because that wasn't the plan. So just go back to the original. So Paul's going to come to the Corinthian church with all this baggage that they have brought in from the culture and he's going to do what Jesus did. And there's a lot of complicated issues, no, no question about that, complicated situations in Corinth. He's just going to take them back to God's intent. And Jesus didn't lose credibility then when he gave all these answers. He gained it. And it's going to be the same with Paul. And that should help the church engage the culture. Jesus said, all Jesus said is what God said, that's it. That's, that's the way it is. You, what's going on now, what the Supreme Court said is the marriage, isn't a marriage. Why? Because the, the greatest Supreme Court in the universe already determined what it was at the very beginning. He laid it down, and it hasn't changed. Just because culture changed at Jesus' time, it didn't change. And just because culture's changed now, doesn't mean it's changed. It's still the same. So, when you're talking about Divorce or living together or homosexuality or transvestism or whatever before you try to judge whether or not it's right or wrong. Just think about Jesus' words. Have you read this? That's Jesus' answer to their first question. Have you read what he, has God said at the beginning? Now, I'll put you on pause there for, in Matthew because I think it's important to see that this teaching in Matthew 19 is really affirmed all throughout Scripture. So we're going to look at a couple other places and then we'll return to Matthew 19 because there are two more questions. One from the Pharisees. And the Pharisee's question, of course, is like this. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they asked you a question and you gave them the answer and then they asked another question and it was as if they didn't hear anything you just got through saying? Our kids do that a lot, you know. You just got through saying and then they ask a question, you're like, were you here just, you know, the last five minutes as I answered this question? That's exactly what the Pharisees are going to do, okay? Even though Jesus said, hey, what did God say? They're going to say, well, how come Moses said it was okay? And so he's going to answer that question. And then the disciples, they're, they're listening to all this teaching, and they're listening to how strict it is, and they're scratching their head like, wow, this is how it is. I mean, who can get married? And so Jesus is going to answer their question too, and that's going to include singleness and some really valuable information for us. And we're going to come back to that. But right now, what I'd like to do is just kind of look, take a little survey, if you will, that we can, so we can see that this teaching is really affirmed all throughout the Scriptures. And we're going to come back to Matthew 19 in a few Sundays and, and uh, see the other stuff. But just to shore up in your mind, the continuous, undeniable teaching of the Scripture, when God initially gave the model back in Genesis that we just saw, He confirmed it in a number of different places. Now, in the Ten Commandments, of course, beginning in Exodus chapter 20, He says this, we find the most important facts of the law that God gave for men. I mean, He could have said anything He wanted. It could have been the top 25. You know, it could have been 
you know, 100 main things you need to know or whatever. But once again, I want you to remember, as God created everything, he could have done whatever he wanted to do and then said, this is what I want you to do. And he could have said anything he wanted to Moses. And he could have wrote down however much many things he wanted. Now, they were written on tablets of stone, so Moses was probably glad that there were only 10. Because if there were 100, that'd be pretty heavy. All right, carried down from the mountain. But bottom line, God could have said anything he wanted. But here's what he said, okay? Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. The word itself applies to an intimate relationship outside of the marriage relationship between married people. Okay? With someone other than the marriage partner. That's the word adultery. You shall not do it. God says don't. Now, he could have said anything he wanted. It was his law. And here he says you're not to violate marriage in that way. And God was so serious about it. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, he said that if you do commit adultery, you should be put to death under the old covenant. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, remember the definition of what adultery is, okay? He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I want you to... And I'm glad we don't live under that anymore, aren't you? I mean, that's, I'm glad we don't live under that, that, uh, the old covenant. Because children who were disobedient to parents and cursed parents would be put to death too. And so in grace, we have uh, this margin where the Lord allows us that rebellion, but allows us to seek repentance and doesn't immediately require death. Because the Lord could execute the sentence himself, right? And it's only grace that keeps people alive, if we said this before, who curse God, the next breath they take is what? Grace. If you curse God, the creator of all the universe, and you take another breath, you live in grace. And of course, men live inside this grace purchased by, to, for us by Jesus. Now, here's the thing I want you to see in this passage in uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The sin that broke the marriage was adultery. Because if you committed adultery, it resulted in what? Death. Okay? And... That's pretty clear teaching, okay? You don't have to scratch your head and wonder what he said. So don't not violate marriage with adultery because, you know, if your spouse committed adultery, it brought about their death, and of course, death is the end of the marriage. So there's no more marriage if one person is dead. So he said, if you violate marriage, you're going to pay for it with your life. There's no condition there for divorce, just a proviso for the execution of the offending party or parties. Uh, the innocent party would be then be free to marry again. God wanted to make them understand the violation of the marriage was fatal, Okay. It's really a God's eye view, if you will, of how serious he is about this sacredness of marriage. Now, at the 10th commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, he says this, you shall not covet or have thoughts and desires for, that's the word covenant, covet, your neighbor's house, and what's the next thing listed? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and God lists off some other things that are basically to say, don't desire anything that's your neighbor's. So God makes it pretty clear. In his view of the sanctity of marriage, not only are you not to commit adultery, you're not supposed to desire to commit adultery. That's how important it was, okay? You're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to think about doing it. And if you remember, Jesus said the same thing to his first group of in his first group of teachings, his first messages in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5.27. He says, you've heard it said... Uh, to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So once again, you get both of those commandments taken in. Jesus kind of undermines everything that was told to them before. So listen, the, the, the original idea here is you don't desire to do it, and you don't do it, okay? 
So in God's mind, marriage was so much of a bonding, so much of a one flesh, so important that he was the author of it, that it was a violation of his command, even if it was done in the mind. See, that was God's ideal. That's the way he crafted it from the beginning. That's how sacred it is. It seems to be, of course, very difficult to live up to that design, doesn't it? And the church seems to have a big, very pervasive problem in this area. And we know why that is, of course, because sin, right? It all goes back to the curse struck right at the heart of marriage. Genesis 3.16 and following, the woman desires to rule and not submit. She wants to have control. That's the fallen nature tendency. And the man, as a result of his punishment for sin, his fallen tendency wants to overpower the woman, to dominate her, to rule her, you know, and, and simply the man and woman's desire to rebel and fulfill their own lusts. So in general, rebelling and fulfilling their own lusts, specifically attacking then in the marriage so, and that desire to fulfill their own lust, of course, takes all kinds of different forms, and you don't have to read very far into Genesis to see it take all those different kinds of forms. And sin left its mark on mankind after that first disobedience, and part of that mark is marital strife, part of that mark is problems inside the marriage, certainly redefining marriages, or substituting something in its place, or corrupting it. All those things are part of that mark on marriage after that first disobedience. And as you read the book of Genesis, right away you're going to see marriage received a beating from sinful men in the way of polygamy and adultery and homosexuality and incest and prostitution and on and on and on and the seeds which have brought a bountiful crop of conflict and sorrow that continues right up to today. And all the other forms that sin takes as an ever-increasing wickedness. And the Corinthian church is bringing in all this baggage. And so this information that goes back to the beginning in creation is common knowledge that Paul will rely on to instruct the Corinthian church as he weeds through the very complicated issues of relationships as they come in. Now, these basics of human relationships from the mind of God then are immutable. They were from the beginning, they extend all the way through, and so just because there's conflict, and just because society has changed or modernized, that doesn't mean that God's changed his mind about what he says, about what he's created. So I want to just keep going back there. Just because we're in a different age, doesn't mean that God has changed his mind at all about what he said. Now, as I said last time, I want to turn to Malachi chapter 2. We didn't have time last time, so turn to Malachi 2. Well, you and you're in Matthew right now, so just flip back one book to the left and you'll be there. Okay? Malachi 2, beginning of verse 13. I love this passage. It has a lot to say in, in a rebuke, really, of uh, the Jews as they've come back from, the, from captivity. He has some things to say to them which help us understand how, again, here we are, culture's changed. Uh, we're thousands of years after he's given the law. And here we are, and the people are here doing some things, and God talks about marriage, and he talks about the sacredness of marriage and this relationship he created. And he has some very important things to say. And after all the Old Testament history which has unfolded, after the pounding that marriage has taken as a result of sin, here's what God says to the people. Now they're back from 70 years of punishment. Uh, one of his indictments on them is found here, and it gives us another, if you will, a God's eye view of how the Lord looks at this relationship after all that's happened. Okay? You might think, you know, after all the history of mankind, you know, up to this point, the Lord might have really thrown up his hands and said, you know, What's the use? They're never going to get it. Why should I even harp on it anymore? I mean, I'm not going to, why didn't I just, just let it go? Okay? But he doesn't do that. Now, Malachi 2, verse 13, if you look there. And we won't read all the stuff that he's talked about. This one applies to us, okay, in, our, in our, our conversation here. This is the second thing you do. So he's giving them a list of things that are happening as they've returned from the captivity. And he gets to the second one. And he says, this is the second thing that you do. God's observations of what they're doing. Okay? You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, 
For what reason? Why don't you receive the offering from our hands? Why aren't you taking this, this offering we're bringing? Why aren't you accepting the crying and the weeping that we're doing at your altar? Okay, well, here's this. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The takeaway there is this, beloved. One of the things that's amazing about the verse is, is there's two things really I want to draw your attention to, but the takeaway is this. The Lord has been a witness. I love this. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Isn't that amazing? Of all the things that the Lord watches, and he watches a lot of things, and he controls things, and he is interested in things, and he brings his attention to things, but one of the things that he watches, I thought this was very interesting, of all the things God is concerned about, he's concerned about this violation of marriage. That's, that's amazing to me, that he, in all of the things he has to control, and all the things he oversees, that he's a witness here, okay? He watches, in other words, he judges when the marriage partner deals unfaithfully with their spouse. He sees, okay? And I've encouraged many uh, spouses in this very verse who have been left by their partner. You know what? Don't think that you're all by yourself here. Okay? Don't think that the Lord doesn't see what's going on. Don't think that he doesn't understand your sorrow. Don't think that he has, it hasn't registered with him that this is messed up and you're being dealt with unfaithfully. He witnesses this, it says. He watches. He brings it to his people and says, look, I know what you're doing. A lot of areas I know what you're doing, but particularly this area, I'm watching. And number two, and this is amazing, the end of verse 14, he says this, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And there, that powerful link really is expressed with wording that she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15 says, but did he not make them one? Look at uh, Malachi 2, 6, 2 uh, 15. Did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? So with the life-giving Spirit that God has, he makes them one. He could have made as many as he wanted, but he makes one. And then it says, and why one? He's seeking godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. And let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. In other words, look, I'm watching. I, I witnessed this. This is important to me. I made you one. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And dealing treacherously here equals divorce. Okay, So that's the, obviously the, the connection here. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. In other words, reign in your life, for crying out loud, that you don't deal treacherously, okay? Take heed to your spirit, he says. This is what the Lord says. He's already said that at the beginning. He made one man for one woman, and he bonded them together, and he says, don't split it up because I make marriage. And so here we are, fast forward through all the history then of the Israel people and all the history of the world and these great and, and uh, huge kingdoms, and we get to this point in Malachi, right before the 400 silent years, and the Lord says, Listen, I'm still having problems with this. He didn't throw up his hands and say, well, they're never going to get it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Take heed to your spirit. Reign your life in. I still hate this. You know, and after all, in Matthew 19, when Jesus says, let's ask God, we had revealed to us one man for one woman, no other options, powerful link, cleaving joined together, God's the craftsman of marriage, don't, don't put it away. Just because the first two sinned and the punishment of that sin came through the curse and one of the components of the curse is marital strife and, and the attack on marriage and the skirmish begins between husband and wife and between the world and the culture and the husband and the wife since pounded marriage with all kinds of things but has God changed his standard? Not in the least. 
And he gets to this point, he says, I haven't changed my standard at all. This is exactly how I feel about it. And Jewish men addressed here were guilty of treachery against their wives. And that can mean many things, of course. Anything that departs from the understanding of human relationships that we have. Okay, In this context, it certainly means adultery, a physical, intimate relationship with someone else. Other than your married partner, it also means divorce. But what the Lord's saying here is this. The adultery you committed with that other person didn't marry you to them. Okay? It didn't marry you to them. Any more than when he talked to Herod Antipas about Herodias and said, she's your brother Philip's wife. Just because they got married outside of biblical divorce and defined biblical divorce didn't make the new couple a marriage. It means they dealt treacherously with the previous one. Okay? And they're still married as God looks at it. Okay? So here's the thing. The adultery you commit didn't marry you to them. You have a wife, and yet she is your companion still by covenant. The thing that makes marriage is not the physical intimacy. It's the covenant. Two people coming together, promising, pledging, uh, covenanting together to a lifelong companionship. And as we were mentioning at the beginning, we see it clearly here. Someone who has an intimate relationship with someone other than their marriage partner, that act doesn't make another marriage, okay? It's the act of fornication if they've never been married and their partner's never been married. It could be an act of homosexuality between two people of the same gender. It could be an act of adultery. It can, be, it can never be a marriage, see? It's just sin, see? And that's super important for, I, as, I, as that really resonates with me as I think about the culture and all the times I've witnessed to people. And beloved, we lived in Miami and, and uh, white days in Miami is just a horrible time, a week of just celebrating and you know, Key West is just this magnet for, for homosexual relationships and we had so many conversations with people and it just comes right down to this. Listen, it doesn't make a marriage, it just makes sin, okay? Just magnified sin, but it's still just sin. So don't deceive yourself. Of course, that makes people super mad. They don't want to hear that. But does it make them any more mad than you come into a guy who's, who's uh, left his wife and he's with someone who's not his wife? Listen, I've been through that too. They're just as mad. They don't want to hear that because sin is enjoyable for a season. And whatever the, the decadence, whatever the, the corruption that goes on in the heart, that's, that's enjoyable because they're blinded to the good news. They're blinded to the life they could have. And they think this is the best life because they're fooled by the one who fools and deceives all men and just exacerbates the, the intent of the heart and the, and the trend of the heart in whatever direction that will be. But it doesn't make a marriage, see? No matter what the relationship is outside that original marriage, it doesn't make another marriage. It never can, see? It's considered by God here to be treacherous act against the wife of your covenant. And of course, on a broader sense, it's a treacherous act against God's original plan. It's the lifelong pledge of companionship that composes a marriage. And, and anytime two people make that covenant, and anytime I do weddings, I always take an extended amount of time with that concept in the marriage ceremony, much usually to the bride's uh, irritation, because I take a long time to that part. They just want to get it over with. But, you know, I think that part is super important. They need to understand, you're making a covenant together. God sees it. He's going to always remember it, okay? That's what makes a marriage, your promise to stay together, your promise to to fulfill each other, your promise to stay together with each other, your promise to encourage and become one flesh, and all, that, all the stuff. That's the thing that makes a marriage, okay? Because anytime a man and woman make those promises, make that covenant, make that pledge, that composes a marriage, whether they're saved or not. They're joined in what God has put together. They're going, joined in what God has looks at as one man created for one woman. A powerful link, a cleaving together, a cr his craftsmanship. He makes marriage. He defined it, what it looks like. 
And he says, don't depart from that. Now turn with me, if you would, as we close our comments up today. Ephesians 5.22. I know I've given you a lot, but I hope it's, it's kind of meshing together for you. And just kind of seeing this consistent teaching as Jesus says, listen, what did God say? And then this consistent teaching throughout the scriptures, or Ephesians 5.22. It's consistent teaching throughout the scriptures. So, so, so important as we look uh, and kind of confirm in our hearts what this is supposed to look like. And just, just be settled, okay? The culture's going to say all kinds of things, and it has all throughout the centuries, okay? Just be settled. What did God say? That's all you've got to say, all right? And then be quick to give the gospel. An answer for those who seek, okay? Understand what the good news is and be able to give it out, as we prayed this morning, that we can be that kind of church, giving out the gospel. It'll, it'll go quickly. It'll be received by people. He'll open their hearts. All the stuff we can do as we come before the Lord in repentance, and, and have a broken and contrite spirit, okay? And have, as we are able to, establish our relationships with our wives or with our husbands in a way that becomes that example, what that's supposed to look like, that oneness and, and the cleaving together and uh, one man for one woman, all that stuff, all part of that marvelous witness you can have. Now, this text is really awesome, it's, and it's been a while since we've been here, so I'm glad we're back here again uh, today. It's beautiful, it's peaceful. It, it doesn't seem to go with what we know empirically about marriage. And so it's, in some ways it brings a smile to your face, and in other ways it's like, as you read this in your quiet time, if you're studying Ephesians, you're just like, Lord, this is, what, this is what I want. I don't do this very well. Again, I'm reminded, this is what it's supposed to look like. Okay? Look at Ephesians 5.22. All of our experience doesn't seem to add up to this, but it starts like this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, doesn't that seem difficult? And all the ladies said, I didn't plan for my wife to lead the charge, but uh, <laughs> ladies, you're probably thinking, I, you know, I could submit now and then to him, okay, but as to the Lord, I mean, that's really difficult. I mean, you know, I know this guy, and there are a lot of things that are true about this guy that are not true about the Lord, okay, and there's a lot of things true about the Lord that are not true about this guy. So uh, we talk about, I mean, subject yourself to your own husbands as to the Lord, Okay. The passage seems completely beyond reality, right? Well, what it is, though, is God's just reaffirming the original plan from creation. And just going back, Paul, and just making it clear, okay? You know, when Adam was perfect, and so was she, and it recognizes in meekness and in love and in gentleness, the wife should be submissive to her own husband and recognize the headship that's there. And then according to verse 24, she would be subject to her husband in everything uh, where she combined with him and reigned the earth and ruled it well. According to God's plan, she was his helpmate, all that kind of stuff. It's just hearkening back to that, the original plan. Just look back there, okay? You're born again, right? And so he says, listen, that's what it's supposed to look like, ladies. And then, the same, you know, you look the same in verse 25. Husbands, he sa it says, you know, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So according to the curse, the woman seeks to control, okay, and not submit. And the man seeks to suppress her and dominate her. And, of course, just pounding the marriage with all kinds of other options. So we're just going to abandon this whole thing and just go some other direction. Not so here. Here the woman wants to submit as unto the Lord. The man doesn't want to dominate. He just wants to what? Love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, these are the things Paul's bringing to the table as he comes to Corinth. With all the complex situations going on there, he's just going to go back to this. He's not going to change his plan at all. And then verse 20, uh, 26, look there. So they might sanctify her, having cleansed her 
by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, any such thing. So he makes this marvelous merging of the marriage relationship and Christ in the church. We looked at that several weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 6. This is what that looks like, okay? It's a picture, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and she would be blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So purify her, men, and make her more radiant. That's the things you say, how you act. Promote her holiness. See, you know, you should never be seeking to do anything that promotes worldliness in your wife, but purity. Just like Christ says the church, nourish her, verse 29 says. You know, cherish her. These are the, these are the things that... As uh, Paul is talking to the church, he's just hearkening back. Listen, this is what it was supposed to look like before sin dominated the scene, see? So in Ephesians 5, you have this incredible passage which seems totally contrary to life as we know it, to life as those in Corinth would know it. Because, but because we're born again, we should return to this original plan, the one God had set down in Genesis 1 and 2. Is it possible? It must be possible... If the Lord asks us to do it, then he's given us the resource to do it, see. And the key to it is found back in Ephesians chapter 5.18, of course, and we've looked at this so many times because it is the key to the Christian life. Don't be drunk with wine, which, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. When Christ is invited into a marriage, and those two people love him, and their lives are controlled by the Spirit, and this is a thing we talk about a lot of times in premarital counseling for a long time, what it means to be controlled by the Spirit. You know, I don't give couples, here's five easy ways to make sure you always have harmony in your marriage. Here's how you have harmony in your marriage. Don't be controlled with wine, which is just dissipation. And, and wine isn't the, really the issue. Paul talks about drinking in other places. But it's just control. Don't be controlled by that. Be controlled by the Spirit, see? You want to get along with your wife. You want to love your wife. You want to purify her. You want to, you know, make her more holy. You want to nourish her. You want to cherish her. You want to promote her holiness. Ladies, you want to submit to, her, to him as unto Christ. The only way you're going to do that on a day-to-day -day basis with all the circumstances of life and all the pressures that come on you when the water heater's leaking down through and into the bottom, into the basement or, or you wrecked your car or the dog died or whatever it is, okay? The only way you're going to be able to do this is on a daily basis, what do you do? You bring yourself into the subjection to the Spirit. And then, then you have resource then to hearken back to the original plan that God intends for us to go back to, this model that hasn't changed from the beginning, see? When Christ invited, is invited into a marriage and the two people love him and their lives are controlled by the Spirit. In other words, and again, Colossians 3.16, right? Letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the parallel text. It just means basically the same thing. The word which was written, carried along by the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside you. When the word of Christ is in control of your life, you've responded in obedience to it. Obedience to the word, being filled with the Spirit. It's not mystical. It's not something that takes over, transports you out of your mind. It's not going out of yourself, okay, or having some kind of subjective experience, okay. It's not a silver bullet, you know, that I can give you to fix your marriage. It's just being controlled by the Spirit, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the key to hearkening back to this original plan that God had. One man for one woman. No other option. Strong bond. Cleaving together. God makes marriages, he said. My definition. Don't, don't mess it up. So God's invited in. Then verse 21, you submit to one another in the reverence of God. See, The reason we keep marriages together is because that's God's craftsmanship. We don't, we can't redefine it. It's God's plan. This is what it looks like. Okay, No matter what men may say, it's still that. Always will be that.
It's been his priority right from the start. He watches closely when treachery is done to marriage. It's not ceased to be his priority. And what we want to do is submit to the authority of the Word of God. See? Intrinsic authority. What it says is what we do. It has authority in our life intrinsically. Okay? We walk in the authority of the Word of God because of Christ's presence. Wives can return to their original position in a sense as submissive and respectful of their husbands, and husbands can return to their original position in a sense as loving and cherishing and nurturing their wives. And where sin comes in, uh, there will be forgiveness as God forgives Israel, as Christ forgives the church. Uh, love covers a multitude of sins, and that all goes to work. See that dynamic with the resource that you have. But as long as we've talked about this before now, as long as, you know, People go into marriage demanding their own rights, justifying themselves, defending themselves, getting what they want, seeking their own fulfillment, following after their own interests, following after their own desires, not following after obedience of Christ and his word, give, you know, giving in regularly to the temptations of the flesh that just wrecks havoc on marriages. Okay, It's the opposite of all that we've talked about. But when this word comes into the union, selflessness, you start down the right road, see? you start resembling Christ. Those who love don't condemn. 1 Corinthians 13, those who love don't demand their own needs. Those who love meet the needs of others. You, know, you just start, start seeing these types of fruits in the relationship. Those who love are not looking to take care of themselves. Those who love are patient. They're kind. They're glad for someone else's achievements. Those who love push other people up. They want to know about other people. Those who love are considerate of others' needs. Those who love give their lives away for others. See, that's selfless. That's selflessness. I think more of you than I do of me. I say no to me. I say yes to you. I don't have to justify myself. I may be falsely accused. That's okay. These are all things we've talked about before, beloved. And these are all things that begin to resemble Christ in your marriage. See, This is the picture of Christ. We're supposed to be reprints of that picture to one another. Think about it, man. Love your wives like Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that passage mean if it doesn't mean selflessness? Think about it, ladies. 1 Peter 3, 1, just quickly. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Even if you have an unbelieving husband, wife, you're still able to have some serious impact. And that's why Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 and following, if the unbelieving spouse wants to stay, let them stay. Why? Because you may have a serious impact on that relationship because of your submission to the Spirit and you're hearkening back to that first relationship that God created in the garden. And you're going to be that way regardless of whether that's reciprocated. See? And that finds favor with the Lord. And husband, you're going to love your wife like Christ loved the church Regardless of whether that's reciprocated back because you're going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and you're hearkening back to that original position that the Lord intended for you, see? So what does that passage mean, beloved, if it doesn't mean selflessness? You know, in 1 Peter 3, 7, then it gets the guys in the, in the uh, crosshairs. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. You have to know what she's thinking, why she's thinking. You have to figure that out. You're thinking to yourself, oh my. But controlled by the Spirit, you're going to be able to be able, able to approach that. Ultimately, she, if she loves the Lord, she wants a spiritual leader. See? And you're going to have to conform to that in your own life. Apart from whether or not she is or whether or not she pushes you up or down. All right, If you're not married and you've got uh, a significant other and they're not encouraging you, lifting you up, they're not in the Word as much as you, then you need to stop that relationship right now. 
Okay, don't get into that unequally yoked relationship. But bottom line here is this. Husbands, same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor, whether you understand her or not, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. A grace of life, of course, ultimately salvation, specifically here, marriage is in view. Uh, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Well, if we just took that verse and stuck it on the mirror in our bathroom, that would start us on the right path, wouldn't it? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. That means somebody does evil to you, you don't return it. If somebody does insult you, you don't return it, okay? It means it's actually actively going on. Somebody's insulting you, you're not returning it. Somebody's doing evil to you, you're not returning it in that marriage relationship. But giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called for the purpose of enduring these kinds of things, that you may look, may look Christ, make Christ look great, and you're that reprint, and that makes marriage look great, and that original plan looks right. And what does that passage mean if it doesn't mean selflessness, see? If it doesn't mean selflessness. I'm not going to be vengeful. I'm not going to be vindictive. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to be self-centered, egotistical, narcissistic, self-important. I'm going to say no to myself and those things that drag me away and chip away and destroy the covenant I've made with you. See? Those things that would draw me away from the bond of love that we share, I turn away from them. I say no to anything that chips away at this bond that we have, this closeness, this relationship I'm supposed to have with you. I say yes to you, and that doesn't mean I consent to your sin. No, I, I consent to your holiness. I desire for you to walk closely, and, and I do consent to your well-being and your need and your best interest, and I abandon myself, and I cleave to you, and I will in everyday practice be what God sees already, one flesh. That's the original relationship. That's the original plan. That's all God intended from the beginning. One man, one woman, strong bond. It, you know, getting rid of all others. This is my plan. He says, don't mess it up. Don't change it. Don't redefine it. Don't remove yourself from it. This is what it looks like. And then in practice, as we look at these epistles, it, it takes on this, this uh, character traits, see, these character traits. And these, beloved, are the principles that Paul will assume the Corinthian church knows as he deals with their questions. So he's going to give them straight answers. He's going to say, I say this, not the Lord. He's going to say, the Lord says this, and it's things that are way back, and, and you can just look at them, but he's not going to go back to them. So I want us to know what they are as we come into this passage. The basics of human relationships are found at creation. What did God say? What did God intend? What did he command? Those things are still true today, see, for human happiness and holiness and fulfillment. And beloved, where God says no, it's no for everyone, not just Christ followers. And there are consequences for not following his pattern. And they're always painful and full of sorrow and chastisement and ultimately death. And where God says yes, it's yes for everyone. For their good. And for their fulfillment. And for their blessing. Marriage is his plan, his definition. Done his way, it blesses individuals, it blesses family, it blesses culture. Now next week we're going to pick up in Matthew 9, verse 7 through 12. And you can read ahead if you want. And we're going to see what else Jesus has to say to his disciples and the followers and to the Pharisees. And it'll give us some more insight on background that Paul will use in Corinthians. It'll give us some insight on singleness and what God has intended and the gifts God has given. And all those things, I think, are for our benefit. Not only do they help us understand the context of Paul's teaching and answering questions from the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, but it's just beneficial by itself for us, a refreshing course, if you will, about how we deal with one another and the example that we are to our culture. All right. Let's bow and be dismissed to prayer.
Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're always so grateful for it. It's, it is so powerful, full of truth. It is so encouraging, enlightening. It takes really the weight off of us in the respect of having to try to defend you. You said what you said, and we just embrace it. And Father, I pray that you'll give us opportunity to both be an example of that great relationship you set up between the husband and the wife, and also that we might be able to be clearly uh, articulate about what that's supposed to look like and why for the blessing of man and, ha- and mankind and for, um, for the culture and for society. And Lord, I pray too that you help us to be active witnesses, having the gospel, being quick with the gospel as we have opportunity on the 25th of this month to witness. I pray that we'll again prepare ourselves for that in life, that that's a habit, not only witnessing in the park, but witnessing regularly as we have opportunity. Uh, we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so we understand that power because it's, it's transformed us. Help us to be joy-filled, winsome Christians that can uh, share the gospel that is attractive to others. Father, thank you for the blessing today of being together tonight as we come back to Joshua and our study with John. Lord, I pray that you'll guide him as he teaches. Help us to come away with very important understanding of your, uh, your guidance in the mission of life as we look at the Hebrew children and their conquering of the promised land. And we give you praise today uh, for this opportunity to be together, for the giving, for the singing, for the praying. And God, guide our, our prayer life as we come into this next week and the weeks to come as we pray for our nation. Help us to see these models that we see in Daniel 9 and in uh, Psalm 51. And the things that Paul tells us to pray about, help us to incorporate those things in an active prayer life that interacts with our time in the Word. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.